Uh, turn, turn to the book of Ruth, if you would. Ruth 3, and we'll talk about it in a minute. All right, today we're going to talk a little bit about observing narratives or uh, making sense out of the portions of Scripture that are just giving historical accounts. How many of you like those passages of the Bible? Does anybody find like 1 Kings easier to read than parts of Leviticus, for instance? Um, because we like, we like stories of people. Yes? Well, the Lord has put an interest in me for cultural anthropology, mm -hmm. the culture of the Jews, and for the history. And more do you understand the Bible better when you know the culture and the history. You do. And I, for one, in fact, my kids were asking me this last night. Did, did my, uh, my, my daughter asked me, she, oldest daughter, she said, did you like math and history when you were in school? And I said, no, I did not. I was too dense at the time, apparently. I, you know what made me like history? When I came to Christ and started walking with God, all of a sudden history became fascinating to me. Um, God's intervention in mankind, uh, how, many, how, how it proves the veracity of his word, I just, I just, I don't know, I, that changed it where I all of a sudden became interested. Math, I guess I became interested in math when I became a contractor, and bad math makes you bid projects really badly. So you learn to like math, at least in a, in a, in a practical sort of sense. Um, all right, so we're going to just talk about, though, making sense out of them. <clears throat> all right, who's the most, I mean, don't answer this, I think we've all heard of brilliant writers uh, ones that the world considers brilliant. Um, but actually, biblical narratives are brilliantly written. Um, there's no question about that. The, the world may not recognize it. Some worldly scholars have recognized that. Uh, in fact, some have looked at Paul's writings, which aren't narratives, they're epistles. Uh, some secular uh, writers have looked at, for instance, the Book of Romans and said it's the one, of the most, one of the most brilliant pieces of literature ever penned. I mean, his logic there is just... Irrefutable. I remember hearing of a, a secular lawyer looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, there's nothing missing. It covers everything. It covers everything, at least in seed form. Yes? Um, as, far as, as far as books that use a wide variety of language and terminology, Shakespeare was number one with his vocabulary. Isaiah is number two with his, <laughs> with his vocabulary. Isaiah is something. Um, sometimes you don't realize how brilliantly they're written because it takes some time and guidance to fully appreciate the narrative sections. And I would say more so in the sense of understanding and making application. It's one thing to read them and say, well, what a story that is and be familiar with it. But to actually make sense out of it um, that this is profitable for doctrine. What does this have to do? Why is this here? Uh, God doesn't tell stories for no point. He doesn't tell stories to entertain. Uh, he doesn't tell stories just to fill up space. Uh, he tells stories with a point. And sometimes it takes some digging to find out what that point is. Um, how many of you have ever heard the name of Ernest Hemingway? Everybody? How many of you have ever heard of Ford Maddox Ford? That's a weird name. I hadn't heard of him either. Uh, but he actually was a prolific 19th and 20th century novelist. 
Uh, but one of his protégés was Ernest Hemingway, who was much more widely recognized in the literature. Ford Maddox Ford actually trained him, taught him how to write. And uh, bugged him by the end of his life uh, that his works weren't as widely known as Conrad or Hemingway, both of whom he trained. Um, I suppose if we help somebody like that develop, and I don't know, human pride's a funny thing, isn't it? It wants to get recognized. Um, but he felt underappreciated, and uh, I don't know that any writing is as underappreciated as biblical narratives, as far as how valuable they are. Now, God is definitely a brilliant writer. He's the, he's the chief writer. He's the one that invented writing and gave it to us. Uh, but he often does not get the credit that he deserves. Though it takes time and guidance to fully appreciate biblical narratives, and the more we study them, the more we understand God's the most incredible writer of all. So we're going to talk some about observing narratives as a first step in, in appreciating and benefiting from them. So what they are, they're just the, and we know this, but they're, they're historical events that are given to us in the form of stories. And again, I thank God for the variety in his word. That we need passages that list commands. We need them. They're important. Uh, we need one thing the epistles do, those personal letters in the New Testament, is they sort a lot of these things out and put them in their proper place. They teach us the relationship between different sections of scripture. Or they clarify a lot of questions that are out there. Um, but God knows our frame. He knows we enjoy reading stories. And uh, he put those in there to teach us as well. He's really used an amazing amount. Um, you think for the, for the poet person, there's, there's poetry. For the singer, there's, there's Bible books written as song. For the legal mind, there's Bible books written as legal code. Uh, for the history buff, there's long historical sections. For story lovers, there's those. Uh, for personal warm letters, there's those. Uh, prophetic events, there's those, there's all of it. Uh, I think many people might think the word story shouldn't be used to describe a biblical account. Should it be used? Should we call, let's say, uh, as they were talking about David, should we call the, the first and second kings, should we call those the story of David? Depends what you mean by that. I don't, it's not a bad word, it's just if somebody thinks automatically of fiction, it's, it's not a good connotation. And I think a lot of times that's what people think of. I don't want to call it a story. Well, it is a story. Uh, stories don't have to be fiction. Uh, there's obviously many good non-fiction stories. Uh, biblical narratives are true stories written in this fashion. Okay, so learning about narratives is necessary if we want to understand them. And of course, they include all the parts of good literature. Narratives include plot, setting, characters, and rhetorical devices. And every one of those common elements helps us follow and understand the story, uh, but they're not an end in and of themselves. Okay, that's huge to remember. There are tools used to convey a point. Um, we should ultimately focus on the point of a narrative rather than getting bogged down in all the minute details. This is where sometimes allegorical interpretation can get people into trouble. Uh, they're looking for hidden codes everywhere. And a lot of these narratives have a couple of central points, kind of like parables. Uh, if you read through Christ's parables, we went through some of those a few weeks ago, but most of the parables, they had one central point. And everything was built around that one central point. If you force all the details, you, get, you end up in confusion. Okay? Because he was teaching usually one central lesson through that parable. Um, 
So setting is a story's time and geographic location. Now we could say the setting is a story's world, okay, where it, where it takes place, what's going on. And really that's uh, three-pronged, three the setting of it. Um, the first prong is the physical setting. You know, considering the physical places and landmarks mentioned in the story, as well as the objects or physical activities that are important to the story. Um, how many of you like archaeological videos? I like them. I'm thankful for them. In fact, I've actually... You ever use Google Earth in Bible study? It's, I haven't done it a lot, but I, I, I remember uh, reading the story of... Uh, remember the story of the pigs running down the slope and drowning in the ocean? You can actually find on Google Earth where that happened, and you could look at the topography of those cliffs. And you can see that the, the sea is further in from the cliffs now because of drought conditions and the, and the water usage. But you can see actually, see the cliffs where it happened. Yes? When we were in Israel... Oh, I want to go there. The, the, the tour guide, of course, was narrating as we're going along, driving along the, uh, the west shore of the Gal Galilean Lake. But he just casually goes, oh, those are the cliffs the pigs ran off of. <laughs> and, off <laughs> and you were driving between the cliffs and the water. Yeah. So the water used to be higher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the uh, level of the lake in the 1900s was about as low as it's been. And Israel is now flourishing, and the lake level is coming up. It's come up at least three to four feet. And the pools in Jerusalem have come back. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's getting set for the return of King Jesus. By the way, all of us are going to go to the Holy Land, you know. Yes, we are. Might be in the millennium. It'll be a whole lot safer in the millennium, in case you're wondering. And uh, Jesus will be there ruling. And, of course, the topography is going to change, right? Did you go to Masada when you were there? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. If you've never read the story of Masada, you should read it. It's a fascinating story. Sad story, but sad kind of a fascinating story. Um, I, uh, I, I would like to go there. I would that's like to see that the, place. That's the only battle that the Romans didn't mint a coin over. All their other major victories in the whole Roman Empire, they always minted a coin, a special coin over the victory. They didn't on that one. Hmm. And they always brought back survivors from their victories and paraded them through town, through Rome. Couldn't do it there, could they? There was the short story as you read in the disciples. There was Simon the Zealot, Simon Zelotes. There was a religious group called the Zealots that were basically guerrilla warfare proponents, uh, carrying out. Get him nodding over there, carrying out attacks on the Roman Empire. And eventually, Rome got so fed up with them they wanted them stamped out, and they fled to what had been Herod's palace up on Masada, basically a big ship-sized cliff. I don't remember how. What is it? A thousand feet up? It's a ways. It's a uh, so totally defensible spot, and the Rome laid siege to it, and it took them quite a while to get in. But when they finally broke in, I think it was 960, if I remember the number, 960 the Jews had, had committed suicide uh, rather than be caught by the Romans. And so when they finally broke into the place, they just found a bunch of dead people uh, that had taken their own life. Kind of like what had happened in World War II um, with some of our, 
soldiers of the Japanese. But anyway, fascinating history. And it, it's, I imagine it comes to life seeing the topography. I guess the next best thing is the, the good, the well-done videos that show the topography. It just even some of the statements in the New Testament, down or up to Jerusalem or going out here, up here, down there. It, it's just, those all give indications, excuse me, of the topography. So there's a the physical setting, there's the cultural setting. Uh, which pretty much every narrow every narrative has a cultural element so as much as possible it helps to be aware of the cultural customs as well as the underlying values and beliefs that influence the story okay this helps the reader separate a cultural norm from a biblically prescribed practice in other words it helps to sort out is this something that they did as a cultural norm and uh, that's the meaning of it to take principles from that, or is this something they did that we are, we are commanded to do? It's kind of like, let's say I preached this morning on greet one another with a holy kiss. And I said, from now on, we're going to obey this passage as a church, and all of us men are going to smooch each other on the cheek when we arrive. I know, isn't, wouldn't that be odd? Well, why don't we obey that? Well, it's a, it's a cultural statement. Okay? They still do that in the East. Men still, that's a very normal thing to do in the East, to grab a guy by the beard and kiss him on the cheeks. Um, we just, we would be, imagine how visitors would love that one here. Uh, they wouldn't be back. Um, anyway, Ruth 3, though, let me read, let me give an example. Of course, we're writing the story of uh, Ruth. I think we know the background of this, so I'm not going to give it. But Ruth 3, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter... Shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man, until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in, and uncover his feet, and lay down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight, and the man was afraid and turned himself. And behold, a woman laid his feet. And he said unto her, Who art thou? And she said, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now, and of course, uh, Ruth or Boaz goes on to praise her virtue. There's nothing immoral that happened here. Um, but culturally, the whole thing with the kinsman redeemer and all that was going on, we don't practice some of those same customs. I don't think any lady would go down and say, well, here's how you should get a husband, sneak into the threshing floor, lift up his robe and lay at his feet. That's a, that's a cultural thing. Okay? There's, there's one of uh, thousands of examples in the Bible of that. Um, but Ruth's actions help us understand the bigger point of the book of Ruth, okay? But they're not a prescription for today. And then you have the temporal setting, okay? Physical setting, cultural setting, temporal setting. Or what is happening in the world in which the story takes place. So what's the, what's the political backdrop? Um, you know, what's going on? What world empire are we in? Um... What dispensation are we in? That's huge. Uh, which covenants have to do with this narrative and what's going on? Uh, 
It's important on a local, national, and even international level. For instance, during the period of the judges, Israel was living under God's direct rule. Let me give an example of that, actually, just from the New Testament that comes to mind. Uh, around the Christmas time, usually we hear about the wise men, the magi, and they show up. It really is an amazing thing. These supposedly former pagans from a long way away, somewhere over in the ancient Babylonian Empire, somewhere in that direction, they come and they show up in Jerusalem saying, where is he that's born king of the Jews? And almost none of the Jews are asking that question. It's, it's an astounding thing. But Herod catches word of that. And uh, you read through that narrative, but the background of Herod, he... he Herod was a power-hungry savage, brilliant man in a lot of ways, but he always wanted more power. King of the Jews was his title that he'd fought and murdered and backstabbed and bribed for. That was what he wanted. And so when these guys show up and ask, where is he that's born king of the Jews? Knowing something of that political situation with Herod and his history gives a lot of light to the narrative of, it was like hitting him with a frying pan. And of course, we see his reaction. He goes to the religious leaders of the Jews and he demands of them where Christ should be born. His tone is demanding. I'm in charge. You, you tell me. And they all answer, Bethlehem of Judea. None of them went to look, but they all knew the answer. And then he comes to the wise men and he asks them. Because he didn't have the jurisdiction over these guys. Uh, he knew they, who they were, uh, at least somewhat. So... Anyway, Herod's uh, cultural or political backdrop gives a lot to that narrative. Um, like during the period of Judges, for instance, Israel's living under God's direct rule. And they didn't have a human king to lead them. Um, God outlined their pattern for living. He carried out his rule according to the covenants he made with them at different times prior to the entrance into the promised land. And those covenants influenced and defined Israel's relationship with God. And again, I know not to be tedious, but let's just review them again. There's five covenants directly with the Jews. Okay, let's, let's talk about, let's quickly mention them before we go forward. What are they? Abrahamic. And, and really, it, it, I find it helpful to think of it this way. Okay, they have to do with the things that in the Jewish mind were the big deals. What did they care about? They cared about their patriarch, their founder, their lawgiver, their king, their land, and their future. Those five and those covenants had to do with all those. The patriarch, Abraham, this is the founder of the Jewish nation, there's the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, what else? What about the kingly? David. Mosaic came next. The covenant of Moses, which was conditional. That's the only one that's conditional. It was, if you do this, then I will do this. Okay, it was, it was, it was basically their rule of life in the promised land to have God's temporal blessings in the promised land. It was never a way of salvation. The law was never given to show man how good he was. The law was given to prepare the way for Christ and show man how bad he was. It was a schoolmaster, uh, Paul says in Galatians, to bring us to Christ. So you've got the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which was conditional. Covenant with Abraham was what? I'm, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a nation. Um, it's going to be your seed is going to bless all the nations of the earth. The Messiah is going to come through him, the Savior of the world. And uh, he, I'm going to bless you. Those that curse you, I'm going to curse. Those that bless you, I'm going to bless. It's still in effect today. I mean, you want to guarantee your nation going south? 
treat the Jews badly. That's a guarantee. Things won't go well for a long time. They're, they're, long term, that's not going to end well. And historically, you look at the nations that have mistreated the Jews, most of them aren't around. England, after World War II, mm -hmm. opposed the establishment of the Israeli state. They did. And a lot of Americans did too back then. We ought to thank God for the, the wave of Semitism, not anti-Semitism, but Semitism, the support of the Jewish people that's still around because of this book. This is the only reason right here there's any Americans that still respect the Jews. This is it. Um, even huge theological systems are cursing the Jews, calling them the Christ killers, and they've been replaced, etc., which is a huge mistake. Okay, so you have the Abrahamic, Mosaic, what about the kingly one? Davidic covenant that God was going to put a ruler on the Jewish throne that was going to rule in Jerusalem, not in heaven, that's coming too, but the Davidic covenant was one of David's descendants, actual flesh and blood descendant, being on the throne uh, in Israel forever. Okay, that's the Davidic covenant. Then you have the land covenant. That's uh, Deuteronomy 29. That's basically the title deed to the land that we call Palestine. Historically speaking, that's actually a bad... That's uh, an inaccurate word, but we use it because, well, we all, we all know what we're talking about. Um, but that land over there is theirs. God has given it to them, and many people have tried to take it. I find it fascinating that in 1948, when the Jews returned, the world wanted to create a place to put them and they had not occupied that as a nation in almost 19, or about 1900 years. And of all places on earth, they picked that. Why not somewhere else? Uh, because God sovereignly parted that just a little bit and stuck them right there. Now they just have a fraction of the land that actually belongs to them. Uh, they're going to own it all someday again. And then the final one is the new covenant. Uh, that, of course, is... Uh, the final fulfillments at the second coming of Christ, when all the Jews are saved in a single day, God will give them a new heart of flesh. But you and I as Gentiles are grafted into that. Um, or even as a Jew living in this current age, uh, grafted into it, that uh, you come to Christ, your sins are taken away. Okay, you take part in that blessing. But the final fulfillment is future. Okay, so again, those five covenants, though, govern the narratives in the Old Testament and you get to certain places and think, all right, where am I? Uh, what's, what's the temporal setting of this? What's going on? What covenants have been given? What's governing? Because it tells you a lot about God's, God's dealings with people. It tells you a lot about God. Um, <clears throat> okay, by contrast, though, to what I just talked about, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance, they take place after Judah was taken captive by Babylon. Okay, so they have a different emphasis, one of returning to the land. Um, the books detail the return of Judah to build the temple and renew their covenant relationship with God. Um, and then e even just noticing the timeline of some of these, like the new covenant was given to captivity prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It was given to prophets that were carried, carried away to exile to Babylon, and God gave that promise of the covenant to the Jews right at their weakest, most desecrated, horrendous period up till that point. And he gave them that to tell them there is a national future for the Jews. 
Uh, this particular generation is going into captivity. But the Jewish nation isn't going to end. Okay, it's going to continue. And God is going to make sure that. Okay, so setting of the various parts of the setting. And then narratives also, of course, have a plot. Okay, a plot is simply the sequence of events that either bring the conflict to a resolution or end with the conflict unresolved. And some of them end with conflict unresolved. I know we like to see a certain ending, but sometimes it just ends and doesn't tell you. Um, Book of Jonah. Remember how that one ends? It ends with an unresolved conflict. In fact, I think it ends with you and I wanting to slap Jonah in our humanness. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, Jonah's, and again, we're of the same flesh. I'm not bagging on Jonah because I, I, know, I know enough about myself to know that if someone was reading my narrative, there's times they'd want to smack me. They'd look at me and go, how can you possibly distrust God after all that you've seen? And we look at the Jews and go, how, how come they don't trust the Lord? How come you and I don't? Have any of you ever seen answered prayer? You see God move tremendously and he saves you, pulls you out of the dunghill and blesses you richly and bails you out. And then our tendency is to not trust him. Well, well, Jonah though, Jonah sees one of the greatest awakenings. That's a better term than revival there because it was people actually coming to God, being awakened. One of the greatest awakenings in history. And he's mad about it. And why is he mad? He's mad because God would dare save those people that were so nasty. That's what he's mad about. He's, and Jonah wasn't a coward. He, mad, he ran because he said, Lord, I, I, knew you, I knew you'd be merciful to them. I knew it. And so I ran the other way. I didn't want the Ninevites to have Do you know what they've done to us? They were, a, they were a nasty people. Nineveh was not a place you wanted to end up if you weren't on their good side. They would literally skin you alive and hang your skin on the, on the wall of the city. They, 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 that's what they did. They, they displayed people's skins. Um, but Jonah's mad. He, why, why'd you do this? And remember the Lord, he's making his booth and he's sitting here watching and he wants to watch the destruction and the Lord makes this, this piece of fruit to grow and it blocks him and then a worm comes and withers it. And Jonah's sitting there depressed with the sun pounding on his head wishing that he would die. And the Lord's pleading with him. I mean, you have compassion on this gourd. Shouldn't I have compassion? On this city where there's more than six score thousand, 120,000 children that can't discern between their right and left hand and also much cattle. That's how it ends. He even cares. He doesn't even want to scorch the cows. But it just ends unresolved. And there's a point to that. Um, we're, we're not told uh, everything that happens. So a narrative plot steers the reader's thinking into the book's major themes. Okay, we'll usually highlight the main points of the book. Uh, for example, the overall plot in Judges. Uh, if you've read through Judges, you can't help but notice it's cyclical. It's repetitive. It's the generations change, the names change, the oppressors change, the deliverers change, but you see the constant washing machine cycle. Revival, apathy, sin, judgment, repentance. And you, you see that over and over and over again. 
uh, highlighting one of the main points of the book. Um, one of the things it shows is God is always faithful. Let's, okay, let's say the Jews repent. Let's pick deliverer number six, whoever that happens to be in the book of Judges. And they repent, and God forgives them, and He restores them. Why does God do that? To show His goodness? It's, it's not because they're sorry enough. It's not because they're now good. It's not because He saw their tears and had to help them. It's because He is God and he's faithful, and he will keep his covenants. And he had told them repeatedly, when you find yourself in that situation, if you deal with your sins squarely, if you return to me to obey my commands and, and walk with me, I'll turn your captivity. The Jews had that promise. And uh, you see it over and over and over and over again. And, and I know from the outside you read and think, boy, isn't 10, 12, 40, isn't that enough? God is God. He's faithful. He keeps His promises. He keeps His covenant. Uh, he demonstrates that He's worthy of Israel's complete trust. By the way, it's one of the lessons to that too, is we're not a theocracy, we're not the nation Israel, but what are the parallels? I mean, we depart from God's guidelines and we live as though we know better, what can we expect? You can expect folly to come. That's what you can expect. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then the neglecting to hear the Lord is the beginning of stupidity, or at least the continuation of it. So the plot in Judges also reveals <clears throat> there was not a permanent solution to the problem of sin, and its consequences during the time of the judges. In other words, God would raise up a new judge or deliverer, and they would deliver Israel from the oppressor, but every time Israel sinned again and needed another deliverer. And it really, it really ends in the last four chapters. Again, the last 17 to 21, uh, five chapters, um, with the conflict between Israel and God unresolved. It ends with them in this same whirlpool. If you look at the plots for Gideon and Jephthah and Samson in the book of Judges, okay, they show that God is faithful to teach His people to fear Him, to serve Him sincerely, and obey His truth. Just like He had told Joshua, if you don't depart from this command, blessing's going to come. You depart from this, cursing's going to come. Um, in fact, uh, what you see in, in Judges is a lot of the problem or a lot of the, the judgments from the Mosaic Covenant coming down. They, they ignore God's rules in the Promised Land. This is what happens. In fact, when they came in, there was Mount Ebal and Gerizim, Mount of Blessing, Mount of Cursing. Okay? And they were shouted out from both mountains. And, and that was really the essence of the Law of Moses. Blessing is going to follow obeying. Cursing is going to follow disobedience. Okay, it was very much conditional, and the book of Judges uh, shows that also. Um, Gideon learned to fear God, that's for sure. And Jephthah, he was an interesting character, but he served God sincerely. And Samson became a man willing to die for God's truth. 
Now, all three of those men had tremendous flaws. Um, I mean, who was, the, who was the biggest conundrum? Samson was the biggest conundrum, I would say. He's an interesting character. So Jephthah's plot reveals a theme that's hard to miss. The plot begins with God demanding that Israel be sincere in their cries for help and worship him. It continues, this is Judges 10, it continues with the introduction of Gideon and his rejection by his family and people. Jephthah's tribe ends up sincerely accepting him and asking him to lead them to battle against the Ammonites. Before the battle, Jephthah makes a vow to demonstrate a sincere trust in God. Remember, he says, uh, basically, whatever comes out of the house, I'm going to dedicate to God. And uh, that vow meant giving his daughter to the Lord, but Jephthah did not renege on his vow. Now, there's, if you've ever wrestled with that particular text, you know what I'm talking about. You wonder, did he actually give his daughter as a burnt offering? Or did he just... uh, basically, did she commit herself to remain unmarried as part of the sacrifice? I would say the latter. I don't think she was human sacrificed. Um, but good people disagree on that. And, and again, you look and go, how, how could that possibly? There's a lot of things in Judges that don't make sense. Uh, there's a lot of things in there that you go, what, what were these guys thinking? But again, it shows a lot of things. It shows the folly of forsaking God. It shows God's mercy in meeting them where they were. And God still does that with us. To take someone who's saved out of the most dark, horrendous, awful paganism you can imagine. And the Lord will save them and He will meet them right where they are. He'll know what amount, He knows what amount of light they have. He knows how totally ignorant they're going to be. He preserves and He protects and He shields them. And uh, I dare say he'll hear their prayers in certain areas and conditions that he wouldn't later on because he knows they're weak. He knows where they are. I think most of us have seen that. In our infancy in Christ, there's things I did and God blessed that if I did now, he would not because I know better now. At the time, in all sincerity, I was trying to obey the Lord. But now I look and go, no, that, that's not, no, the scriptures uh, say otherwise. Um, So God then uses Jephthah to urge Ephraim for pretending they would have fought alongside Jephthah to defeat the Ammonites. So again, observing plot takes some time and patience, thought and patience, okay, but it's crucial to understanding what God is trying to communicate through biblical narratives. Okay, so you have setting, plot, what's going on, and then of course uh, characters, which all narratives are going to include Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, if you would. 1 Corinthians 10. And we'll read a passage there in a minute. I've had this passage embedded in my mind for years, since early in my Christian life, wrestling through some of this stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but uh, one of the characters in the narratives is always God. Although, sometimes God is represented either by a prophet or another character. And there's times where God doesn't directly appear. 
Um, there, there, you know, there's, there's places where God just, his name's not mentioned. And yet you know he's there. He's in the background. In fact, you can see his hand working tremendously behind the scenes. You see providential events happening that have no explanation except God. And yet, he's not even mentioned. And again, I think that mirror is one of the lessons in our own life. Even when we don't directly see exactly what he's doing, he's always doing something. He never relinquished control. He never stops working. He never stops leading. God's leading of you never stops ever. You know, it never, ever stops. I mean, there's some, some of the precise parts of it we get numb to because of sin or something else, but God's leading of you doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. It's always, always going on. So as we interpret narratives, here's a huge, huge principle. It's important to remember they are primarily about God. It doesn't mean, like let's say David's horrendous sin with Bathsheba. Are there lessons there? Sure there are, absolutely. But the primary lessons there are about God. So as we're looking at the characters, as we're looking what they faced, generally the highest lessons are going to be how does God respond? How does God act? How does He keep His covenant? How does He respond to certain situations? Their lives of the characters offer illustrations of the benefit of putting one's faith in God and the consequences of disobeying God. Let me just say this as a side note. One of the, one of the amazing things... And in fact, this is, in counseling over the years, I've found this to be an extremely helpful principle. And then this comes from David's sin and God dealing with him. Let's say somebody commits some evil in their past, and uh, it has lifelong consequences. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's things, the scars aren't going away in this life. And there's fruit of sinful habits or, or actions or decisions in the past that they're going to follow you your whole life. Um, but, I mean, there's a the law of sowing and reaping. What, what a man sows, that shall he also reap. Okay, that, that's, that's universal. That's talking about God's people and the world, period. In fact, it's written to churches, the churches of Galatia. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you get away with stuff and you don't have to reap consequences in this life. That's not true. But at the same time, let's say somebody's aware of sin, they repent of it, they deal with it, and then they have to deal with the consequences of it for some time. Okay? Can you be in fellowship with God while you're dealing with consequences for sin? The answer is yes. Yes. Sometimes I think people get the idea, okay, I failed, and every time the evidence of my failure comes back, God's mad at me and I have to be distant from Him. And that's not the case. If the sin is dealt with, fellowship can be restored immediately, and it was with David. In fact, you see some of the Psalms David wrote, if his intimate fellowship with God took place after his sin with Bathsheba, and while he was facing lifelong consequences for what he did. I mean, the Lord told David, the sword is never going to depart from your house. But 
Uh, David was able to continue in fellowship with God because his sin was dealt with. It's huge. So in other words, God will fellowship with us while he passes out the necessary discipline uh, if he has to do that. It's huge. And we see that in the life of David among other places. All right, so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, though. Again, it's talking about, you see this word, uh, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, you see neither, 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 neither. It's a warning about sin. And of course, it's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, but verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples or examples. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So he's saying all those historical narratives, which is what he's talking about, they were written for our admonition. Okay, for us being built up. That's why they're recorded. So every one of those narratives has lessons that if rightly understood and applied, reap huge, huge benefits for today. Um, I've been amazed at this. I'll just say it as a side note. In dealing with the subject of apostasy, how many of the Old Testament narratives bear out these principles that the New Testament teaches with such clarity? And uh, really, uh, men like uh, Jehoshaphat. It's just one of the central lessons of his life. Um, now he's asked by the prophet, uh, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? It's one of the central lines in that whole narrative. Rebuked by a prophet. Despite all the good he'd done, he forms this alliance uh, that actually tore down his godly walk in appearance. And the prophet says, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, of course, he got very angry instead of listening. Huge lessons there. All right, Romans 15.4. Another along similar lines, Romans 15.4. Okay, this is also talking about the Old Testament. For whatever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So Old Testament narratives among other sections there were written that we might have comfort and patience and hope through the written word of God. And we see God consistently deal with people according to his covenant. I mean, God makes a covenant. He keeps it. He does what he says. All right, we have to be cautious, though, uh, observing from these Old Testament characters' lives. If we focus too much on what the human character is doing or not doing, we might miss the narrative's primary purpose of revealing God's character and ways. In other words, the overly concerned, why did Samson do this or that? Some of the reasons we know, some we don't. Um, but we can miss the more general truths that the narrative is revealing about humanity. Furthermore, the Old Testament narrative characters are most often made their decisions in settings and times that are quite different from our own. Vastly different than our own. So what a character story reveals, and that's true, so you take a period like Judges, it's really hard to imagine how confusing it would have been living in that era. 
And God very much dealt with people according to the light they had. I mean, it was a dark, dark time. And it was a self-imposed darkness, largely, but yet uh, God still was very merciful into their condition. Um, so what a character story reveals about God and his relationship with humanity should be our primary focus in observing a narrative. So we look at a narrative and say, all right, what is this telling me about God and his relationship with, with people? So when we study Samson's life, for instance, concentrating on what his stories teach us about God will usually lead a clearer application than trying to sort out which of his actions were moral and why. Um, and Hebrews 11, in fact, let, let's, let's finish there. Turn to Hebrews 11, and we're going to have to stop in the middle again and be done. Hebrews 11. Okay, and it mentions these men that we just talked about. And uh, the fascinating thing about Hebrews 11 is it doesn't record for us the failures of these people. And uh, we can read this and go, Lord, you're, aren't you kind of whitewashing this? No, he's not whitewashing it, but he's a faithful God who's able to see the obedience of his children and the steps they take forward. That's an encouraging thing. Um, I mean, he talks about Abraham uh, sojourning, and, and he talks about Abraham's faith. And we look and go, man, Abraham struggled. Yeah, he did, but in the end, he displayed faith. He trusted God. Okay, Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. And what did they do? Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. So what's the central point in those narratives of Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, it's that, that by faith they did the will of God despite their horrendous flaws. That's an encouraging thing, it should be. God uses flawed people. Uh, even the Apostle Paul was a deeply flawed individual. I personally think he's, I, hate, I hesitate saying it because I think even Paul would cringe because he wouldn't want the comparison, but you want to pick a greatest Christian who ever lived, it's got to be Paul, the apostle. But Paul was a man of like passions like us, just like the Old Testament prophets. And uh, God is a mighty God. Now we better stop there. Uh, any other questions or comments? Additions or subtractions? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, and uh, thank you for these men like Jonah, and like Peter, and like Gideon, and like Samson, that they had, they had problems, and Lord, you required that they deal with their sin, but yet you used them, and we thank you that uh, you're not only willing to use us, you want to. Help us to do our part to be clean vessels in our fellowship with you. Help us to continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.